You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Beatrice, I've had enough of lists. Virgil, so have I. Beatrice sighs, lays her head down, and falls asleep. Virgil wanders off. In the bushes, he finds a large piece of cloth, bright red and patternless. Is it a tablecloth? A bolt of fabric? Virgil picks it up and plays with it. He waves it about, throws it in the air and watches it fall, wraps himself in it. Then he falls back and starts wrestling with it, the red cloth above him and he on the ground on his back. Suddenly he stops and turns to the audience. Virgil. Someone is dying, and as they are dying, they grab at the red cloth of suffering, and they pull and tear at it, and nothing before in their life has involved them so completely emotionally or overwhelmed them with such crushing intellectual totality. I'm dying. I'm dying. So the cloth becomes everything they see and feel, covering the walls and ceiling of their room, or, if they're dying in the open, filling the entire dome of the sky, but getting closer by the minute, until the red cloth of suffering clings to their body like clothing, only tighter, then clings like a shroud, only tighter, then clings like embalming bands, only tighter, until the red cloth chokes them and they breathe their last, at which moment the cloth, as if pulled by a magician, vanishes, and there's only a body left, surrounded by people whose very pulsing being has made them incapable of seeing the cloth. And life goes on, triumphant, one might say, until the day the red cloth flutters into your view, and you realize it's coming your way, and you wonder, with utter disbelief, how you could have missed seeing it before, how you could have ignored it. But your contemplations are cut short because you've already fallen back and started wrestling with the red cloth of suffering, pulling and tearing at it. Virgil wrestles with the red cloth. Beatrice, waking up. What are you doing? Virgil, stopping instantly. Nothing, just folding this piece of cloth. Virgil folds the cloth into a neat rectangle and puts it down. Beatrice, where did you find it? Virgil, pointing. There! Beatrice, I wonder how it got there. Virgil, I don't know. Silence. Virgil, we could do with a little good cheer. Beatrice, we could. Virgil, something funny. Beatrice, something very funny. Virgil, but not empty good cheer. Beatrice, no. Yann Martell is the author of the best-selling Booker Prize-winning novel, Life of Pi. His new novel is Beatrice and Virgil. Thank you for joining me, Yann. It's my pleasure. Yann, this is a novel about writing and readers. And I was struck by how much it was about reading, and that's something that really interests me. To me, it's about representation and therefore also reading, how we read the past, how we interpret the past, how we represent the past. And because the novel takes on such a difficult subject, it takes on the Holocaust, the novel is sort of soaked in it, um, but it's not a literal representation of the Holocaust. And so because of that, because I wanted to approach it in a non-literal way, more an allegorical way, I threw all these literary things at it. So, yeah, there's, for example, Flaubert's story, The Legend of St. Julian Hospitator, and the, the Henry the writer reads it. We see him in the story in the process of reading it. And later on, we have the taxidermist, the other main character, who um, has read uh, Denis Diderot, the French writer, and he read his book. So you're right, there is a... I suppose I, I put that in there. It's funny, I'm being asked to be self-conscious here, but if I have to jump out of myself and try to look in, I suppose I'm doing that because I want... I think that's a metaphor for how we, how we approach reality. We read reality, and the act of reading it is essential to how we interpret it. Well, one of the things that interests me about reading and writing and that whole experience is that it's a collaborative art and it's the only kind of art that it is as collaborative. And, and it's very, reading is a, is a unique experience in that way because you're nothing without us, the readers. Absolutely. Abs- you're absolutely right. And I think that's also why there's nothing that surpasses a great novel. 
there's nothing to represent uh, an alien reality to the reality of the reader like a novel. So a great novel of, of, of France uh, uh, will capture that time and that place better than anything else, short of the reality of having been there. Because precisely because the reader's imagination is so involved, uh, a good novel is great in part because of the it, you know it asks for the greatness in the reader. It asks for the reader to bring something to that, uh, their imagination, their experience of life. So it really is a, a a melding of the two: the writer's experience of life and the reader's. And because it is so collaborative, because it is a co-creation, it does have an enormous impact. At the beginning of your new novel, uh, Beatrice and Virgil, we, we meet a writer, uh, Henry Lahotte, and he's not having a, a very good time. Uh, he, he's a, a man who has had a very successful novel um, early on in his career, and after the success of that novel, he's um, found himself somewhat at sea. His, his follow-up novel is... It, does not meet with uh, the enthusiasm he hopes for. No, the um, now people. Uh, I think people think that might be autobiographical, which it actually isn't. Um, sure, Beatrice and Virgil's um, the process by which I created it was quite complicated, with many twists and turns. But ultimately, that is reflected in the novel, not because I felt I needed to share my little life, which is not my interest at all more because it suited my fictional purpose. Um, to have a writer at a loss for words struck me as a good starting point to start examining the Holocaust, because the Holocaust famously robs us of our words, robs us of language. You know, the, If you look at the Holocaust constantly, the, the cliches come up of, I could not believe what I was seeing, there are no words for, I cannot express what. Um, all these... Um, uh, testimonies to the uh, illability, the inability of language to capture the experience come up over and over and over again. So to start from that position of a writer who's defeated um, struck me as the right, the right approach. Uh, I, one of the things I, I love is just this, you know, this entree into this writer's mind I think is really a good way to get us into this idea uh, of an event that cannot... Well, maybe not not an event that cannot, but an event that has not yet been approached with language in all the ways that language can approach things. And I think that's what's one of the really interesting aspects of this book is that it directs us to observe that we have not observed something in, in, a, in a manner that we've looked at everything else. No, that's a very good point. That's... Um... In fact, that was that was one of the starting points for this novel. The other starting point was just a long a long term fascination with the Holocaust, just as a human event, as a human tragedy. Despite the fact that I'm a complete outsider, I'm neither Jewish nor of Eastern European descent, it has always been an event that has has, has uh, fascinated me in a in a way that I, I can't integrate it into my life the way other events in my life can be. And the other, as you pointed out, was this observation that. Curiously, the Holocaust stands apart from other events in human history, other tragic events, and by that I mean it could be war, could be rape, could be uh, any number of great tragedies, have nonetheless managed to be represented by, by art. It has, they have lent themselves to being treated by artists and therefore represented in a way that is not factually correct, but is emotionally, psychologically, psychically truthful. Uh, that's what art is great at doing, at, at capturing the essence of something and representing it in an artistic way that does not care for the facts of things. Uh, so, for example, a novel, I mean, a, gr a good novel, is always true. It's not necessarily real. The things that it says are not real. It's not obsessed with factuality. That approach of getting to the essence and not caring about the facts or being, you know, uh, selective of the facts is not an approach that we usually have with the Holocaust. Uh, the Holocaust is usually represented, uh, uh, up till now, uh, uh, has predominantly been represented by nonfiction, whether it's the memoirs of survivors or uh, the works of historians. And this is there's nothing wrong with this approach at all, of course. We need to know what happened before we can understand it. But isn't it odd that we don't allow ourselves to understand the, the Holocaust strictly through our imagination? I'm exaggerating here. The visual arts, they do that. Poetry, 
has taken those shortcuts that get to the truth. But novels, there are very few, what I'd say, true novels, pure inventions to do with the Holocaust. Um, usually most novels that you read are thinly disguised autobiography. Once again, there's nothing wrong with that, but surely there's more afoot in, in fiction than just disguised autobiography. Um, so, you know, allegory, there are very few allegories on the Holocaust. In the, in, the, in, the, in the set of school of, like, animal form by George Orwell, you don't see too many of those uh, with the Holocaust. And I wonder why. Are we not losing something by not allowing our imagination to just react to the Holocaust? It's as if um, we, and I think this is almost true, all the movies made of it are filmed only in black and white. And I think, and I think this is largely true. And that's an interesting observation. It's never been transformed. By yeah, art. It, and it's funny when you look. That's one of the things I've noticed in looking at the Holocaust is we, we tend to over-historicize it. So you're right. We we see these grainy black and white films, this, these grainy and black and white footage, fil- photographs, and we forget that when it was taking place, the reality of it was as vivid as our reality is right now. You know, German soldiers and, and Jewish victims did not walk along in this jerky fashion. They were not in black and white to themselves. It took place in an incredibly vivid reality. It just happened to be one that was passed and that was captured by what is now an obsolete technology. Um, but it means, I think, when we look at the Holocaust, that we tend to throw our minds back and see it's something that was 60, 70 years ago, and also, we tend to very precisely situate it. So we think of the Holocaust as taking place in the hinterlands of Poland, essentially. Now, of course, those are both true. It was an event of 70 years ago, and it did largely take place in the hinterlands of Poland. But we shouldn't just stop there, because um, I wrote this essay on the Holocaust, and one of the things I ask at one point is, you know, what is the, what is the geographic capital of the Holocaust? And I think most people would say, well, it's going to be Auschwitz, one of the camps, or perhaps it's Berlin, where, you know, the capital of the, of the German uh, country, of Germany. But I think, no, it's not. The capital of the Holocaust is the human heart. That's where it started. Um, and w- we tend to see the Holocaust in terms of its finality, those, ma- that, those massive camps. But we forget that that is the end result. And with, at some point, we have to look at that, of course, but we should also look at how it started. And how it started were very private acts of disrespect, very private acts of hate um, by flawed individuals. And eventually those little tendrils grew and this, this massive horrible plant grew that became this tree that completely dominated uh, Germany. Um, and so uh, to me, those little tiny beginnings um, are still very much contemporary. They are not uh, over there in, in 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 Poland, they are not seventy years ago, and that's why, to me, the Holocaust is still contemporary because the Holocaust itself is unique and took place there and then, but things Holocaustal, I think, are still absolutely contemporary. Uh, those little acts of disrespect um, that normally nothing will happen because individuals are powerless, single individuals, but. You know, given social dislocation, given certain circumstances, who's to say that some charismatic individual will not rise again with the kinds of simple, horrific solutions that Hitler have and capture people's imagination, and suddenly we're in a circumstance quite similar to the Holocaust. And that has happened over and over again. You know, Rwanda, Darfur. Um, and so to me, that's the currency of it. Is that the, the, it, It's like rats and the plague. They're still... Uh, uh, you know, in California, lots of rats that have the plague, they just don't happen to jump the species barrier onto the uh, to humans. Uh, but the same kind of uh, uh, the same kinds of rats that brought the plague to Europe and devastated Europe in the you know in the, during the Black Death, is still absolutely current. Just circumstances have changed, but they could change once again. So I think we also we always have to have that that sort of awareness. You know, you used a phrase back there. You said Hitler captured the imagination. And I think that's true, and I've never heard it put that way. But I think that's what you want to do as well with this book, is to capture our imagination and to repackage it. As you, as you say, put it in a suitcase. Uh, um, so talk about you've had a lifelong fascination with the Holocaust. When do you first remember hearing about it or or being told about it and, you know, as a kid? Did you read William Shirer? Or? No, I remember vividly. It was in France. I lived in France as a child, and I remember Mr. Buchanan, our history teacher, teaching us the Second World War. This was an English school, a British school in Paris, 
And um, war is a grand story. Kids love being taught war. I mean, it has everything that a boy would want. There's, you know, uh, trucks and tanks and weapons. There's vivid characters. There's the opportunity to project oneself into so many roles. Um, so it's a fascinating, you just, you just suck it in. It's wonderful. And as an aside, as he was teaching us about the Second World War, he also taught us about the Holocaust. And that was a more nebulous tragedy, because first of all, you had to be explained, you know, what Jews were. And, uh, you know, if there were Jews in my class, I said, didn't really know they were Jews, because after all, they looked like anyone else, frankly. Um, so he had to explain, you know, who the perceived enemy was. And then he had to explain that all these perceived enemies were rounded up and killed. And no, they were not enemies as we would conceive of it. Uh, and so the, 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 the lack of logic to it, you know, why would you kill your fellow citizens who speak your language, fully participate in your society, contribute in every way, in the arts and sciences and the economies, in every way, in, 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 to your body politic, in every way, why would you kill those? It didn't fit. So I remember being just puzzled. You know, in the way that maybe the way you are by a math problem, like, hmm, this puzzles me, I can't figure it out. And it stayed with me. There was no easy mathematical solution to it. Um, however, incorrect. I mean, whereas I said, children can, you know, play war, enjoy the, uh, what they think is war, uh, and that settles it for them. Uh, there was no easy solution for the Holocaust um, in my mind. And that, that stayed with me. And then eventually I started reading about it. So I think the first book I read... Um, was probably you know the diary of Anne Frank, which remains the most popular document on the Holocaust. Um, and I read other books as I you know as uh, Primo Levi, Lee Wiesel. You know I read all those books uh, and I watched the movies and uh, both the features and the documentaries. And it just a always stayed with me. And I was always trying to find a way to how could I comment on this? Um, what can what role can I play in this tragedy? Because that's another thing too. I said the Holocaust has largely been represented by nonfiction. It has also overwhelmingly been represented by Jews. Now that makes sense, of course. It's like most writers about rape tend to be women, just because they are the ones who are the most implicated, and it concerns them most. Um, so it's totally understandable that that Jews would dwell on their greatest tragedy. However, I think it's important that non-Jews implicate themselves. Um, just because history has to be a dialogue, um, especially one where they're so clearly victims and victimizers. It's no point in every Jew being, you know, uh, erudite about the Holocaust. They're not at risk of committing genocide. Uh, despite all the problems in the Middle East, you know, we, we cannot see Israel as a genocidal state. It's a complicated question there. But really, the ones who need to learn about it are the ones who were the victimizers. Um, so... Um, and that means non-Jews. And also beyond that, beyond being a Jewish tragedy, the Holocaust is a human tragedy. Uh, it happened to Jews 70 years ago, it's happened to other groups, and it may happen again. So it's a lesson that has to be widely learned, widely discussed, widely uh, familiarized with. And I think art is the best way to do that. Art is something that provides its own context. You don't need to have a PhD in history. Um, a great story sails through the ages whereas a historical tome tends to sink. You're very interested in storytelling, and that really comes through in this book where there are stories within stories and characters within stories, and characters within this novel create stories. And that's one of the things that most interested me. Your main character, Henry Lote, uh, is a famous writer who's used to getting people's letters, and he one day gets a letter that's uh, quite a bit different from, his, from any other letter he gets. Mm-hmm. He receives two things. Actually, I guess three things. He receives uh, an extract of a play. Or not an extract. He, gets, he receives a play by Gustave Flaubert called The Legend of St. Julian Hospitator, in which certain sections have been highlighted in yellow. He gets an extract of a play between two characters called Beatrice and Virgil. And he gets a very short note saying, uh, Dear Mr. Lote, I liked your book. I need your help. That's it. And that lures him in. He's kind of puzzled by this, so he eventually visits the uh, writer of this letter, who happens to live in the same city as, as Henry. Now, one of the things you, you talk about here, your, your character uh, ponders, is the, and we've talked about this a little bit, is the difference between fiction and nonfiction. And, and you say in this, this novel that, that we are story animals. Yeah, I believe that. Uh, I think we understand things at their most intimate level if they take the form of a story. Now, 
a story is a very peculiar thing. A story is not necessarily a reaction. Uh, sorry, a story is not necessarily a reflection of actual factual truth. That would be the domain strictly of nonfiction. But that's fine because we don't necessarily always want to pay attention to the facts. Um, after all, we live in a an internal dynamic. So how things are can become how things will become. And to change things, we have to have dreams. We have to have vision. We have, we have desires, appetites. Um, you have to see things that aren't there in order to make them not want them there. Exactly. And so that's where, so stories, what stories can do is both reflect a certain reality, but also blend it in how we would like things to become. So it's a very neat, complicated thing um, that can summarize reality while also encouraging us to change it. Now, stories are very varied. Stories can be, you know, totally historically accurate. And, uh, you know, some historians now, in their works, put in dialogue that they don't actually have any account for, but is very close to the spirit of it, just to relate their history in a way. It's a slightly controversial technique. So we have things like that. And you also have historical novels that are very, very accurate, um, which, which take minimal liberties. And then you have, of course, completely fanciful uh, works. So it's a huge range. But my belief is that uh, our, our, what we carry with us are stories, because past reality is so complex. Uh, uh, there's so much to find out, and we can't carry that all. So, as I said, you said at one point, at one point, you know, art is suitcase. Art carries the essential for this trip through life, and stories are that suitcase. Um, and it, at every level, whether it's you know at the level of an individual of their of their family, you know, sort of family lore, sto stories that create a sense, a bond within a family, and very much at the national level. People are constantly telling in sense stories that weave them together as citizens of a country, that give them a sense of identity. Um, and then at an even a higher level, at a religious level, you know, religious stories are stories that uh, encapsulate the essence of reality. Um, and their, their relationship to factuality is very complex. And I, I think stories are absolutely essential. The saddest thing you can have with an individual, I think, is an individual who has no stories. Having been fascinated with the Holocaust your, your entire life, having written a, a huge, you know, very powerful and best-selling novel, it's transformed your life. I mean, as much as you transformed life within the novel, you, this novel also is the life of Pi, helped to transform your life, I, I would imagine. On the outside, yeah. Uh, talk about um, how you decided to design that suitcase, uh, to, to build a suitcase that would, for you, hold the Holocaust. And your character in, in, this, in this novel uh, approaches his publishers with the idea of publishing a novel and an essay. Mm. And you've talked about having written an essay for, uh, about the, the Holocaust. Did you originally want to publish an essay with this novel? Yeah, th th this suitcase was a... As, as opposed to Life of Pi, which actually was a very easy novel to write. Mm -hmm. It was a, a joyful ride across the Pacific. Um, this one was much harder to write, in part because the, 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 the challenge I'd set myself of trying to somehow capture that enormous ocean of sadness that is the Holocaust, to take that ocean and somehow be able to put it in a little fishbowl and say, this is, this is allegorically, this is it. It was very difficult to get there. So initially what I did is I wrote a play. It was a novel, but it was a novel in the form of a play. Why? Because um, I wanted dialogue. I wanted orality. I find orality, what we say is truer than what we write. What we write is already refined, edited. Um, the way, what we say spontaneously, with all the mistakes and, and the nonsense and the, the, the run-on sentences and the sentences that fade into silence, in a sense, that's those are the truest words. That's how we are. Um, and especially in moments of tragedy, in moments of accident and sadness and tragedy, the things we say spontaneously, I think, are the ones that carry the greatest emotional truth. So I wanted orality, which is why I have two characters, Beatrice and Virgil, so they, they can have a dialogue. And I wanted a stage, because stage are universal. Stages literally are found everywhere on earth. Uh, you know, every society has a stage where some sort of performance takes place, whether it's theater, dance, music, whatever. So I wanted that universal universality of setting to counter, try to counterbalance the, the geographical rootedness of the Holocaust. 
And stages so, also have nonfiction takes place on stages too, politics. Absolutely. There you go. Very good point. So I, I initially wrote out this play, and it simply didn't work. It just didn't come alive. It wasn't working. So to sort of try to figure out what I was trying to do, I decided to write an essay on the Holocaust to, to sort of help me clarify my thinking. And then I went back to the novel and rewrote it, adding a layer uh, with a taxidermist and a writer. Now, and then you... I thought I'd publish them together, mm -hmm. essay and, and novel. Now, the original thing you wrote was the play that we see excerpts from in here. We see fragments. Virtual. Yeah. Did you write more than we see in here? Yeah, yeah, I wrote the whole play out. Oh, okay. I wrote the whole play out, but as I said, it didn't work. And anyway, it, it, it's, it's much better now that we get fragments because the two characters in the play, Beatrice and Virgil, are representatives of, uh, of, of Europe's Jews at their greatest tragedy. And those victims, we only get fragments. We get names, photographs. We get so, so little is, is left of their lives. So to get these fragments that are like little peepholes and through, through those little fragments you have to look and try to see the reality beyond, that, that suit, suited me symbolically for this novel. So if fragmented is better. So I re, I re, and then I wanted to publish novel and, and essay together. And that didn't work out. My publishers quite correctly said that, you know, an essay is a very specialized product. A novel is not. Um, a, 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 you know, a, a novel about horses as opposed to an essay on horses. You know, an essay on horse breeding will appeal to very few people. Uh, but Black Beauty, let's say a novel about horses, will apply, appeal to a much wider audience. And they thought that the essay would drag down the novel. A completely valid argument. It also, they felt, it would put blinkers on how people read the novel. Mm -hmm. If you, if you mm -hmm. append a novel with an essay specifically on the Holocaust, people will start reading the novel with the sort of Holocaust blinkers on their eyes. And it's best that people read art as freely as possible, bringing mm -hmm. everything from themselves, their own understanding of life. So some people may read Beatrice and Virgil and think it's a novel about environmentalism. And that's totally fine. People can read this book any way they want. So then we separated the two and the essay is just in a drawer and then I rewrote the novel one last time so it, it was a very long process and reflecting the, the the difficulty of the task I set myself of how do you turn something so story killing as the holocaust into allegory at one point your character says um, my story has no story it is a based on solely on the fact it rests on the fact of murder <clears throat> which is essentially see it's interesting if you have a single murder it's a boon for storytelling mm -hmm. you know uh, why was that person killed who killed them what was their relationship what does it mean how do we feel about it we can delight in individual murders whether it's reading an Agatha Christie whether it's reading Crime and Punishment whether it's watching Dexter you know it's sizzling entertainment if you get more than a few murders, then, well, depends. If it's a serial killer, the victims start to slightly blur if there are too many of them. But then the murderer becomes interesting. You know, who is this Dexter? Who is this you know, mass murderer? But if the victims get to be in the thousands and thousands and thousands, then their individuality completely blurs. And then if the murderers are in their dozens and dozens and dozens, then their individuality blurs. And so what you eventually happen with the whole, what happens with the Holocaust is you have an immense tragedy, but in which personality is irrelevant. The personality of the victims was completely irrelevant. If they were tall or short, beautiful or ugly, educated or uneducated, rich or poor, Hungarian or Greek, it did not matter. All that mattered was that they were Jewish. And whether they were ultra-Orthodox Jews or completely assimilated secular Jews, once again, did not matter. They were Jewish. So their personality did not matter. And the same thing with the victimizers. An SS thug was there to be an SS thug. Anything else about him was totally irrelevant. And so it's very difficult to tell a story in which personality is irrelevant. And also the narrative arc of a genocidal story is very predetermined. Whereas war, sure, people die in war, but not that many really. You know, look at the war in Iraq now, right now. You know, I can't remember how many U.S. soldiers it is killed, but I don't think it's much more than 3,000, you know. And yet it roils up an entire nation because there's, you know, so you can have a war story in which, you know, the hero does not die. But a genocide story, by definition, a genocide story has to kill a lot of people within a group. And um, so that means there's very little suspense. 
in a story about the Holocaust. You kind and when they're when you subvert that expectation, in a sense, you're doing the worst thing that you know that historians complain about. You're, you know, you're not you're not being accurately true. Um, so I'll give you a, a, a sort of a, a sort of historically precise example: the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which was this unbelievably heroic uprising by Jews. Unbelievably heroic. You know, their chances of survival were very very close to nil, and was nil for most of them. Uh, was in some ways totally futile. It made no difference. Um, and to dwell too much on them, I say, well, yes, they did this, they rebelled, but most were not able to because they were civilians and they're, you know, they were they were in such a state of dislocation that they could not. Um, and so it, it, there's something extremely story killing about it. So to 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 take that and to try to transform it into this suitcase, into this little fishbowl, uh, was a very laborious and and tortured process. You know, it, it struck me when you described the the victims of the Holocaust. Um, on the other hand, you, what we also had was a transformed uh, a nation of faceless serial killers because they weren't fighting a war, were they? It was, no, it was just there was just murder. Yeah, no, that's it. That's why uh, um, I said it as the quote to start the last question. You know, it rests on the fact of murder. I, I have no story. It rests on the fact of murder. That's exactly it. It's a storyless murder, um, which, which hasn't you know. It's yielded historical stories, uh, but fictional ones is it's 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 wiped out the page. One of the things that that fascinated me about this book was that when you've got a a play, uh, this Beatrice and Virgil, and a character who has written the play, there's a kind of I mean this is a very metafictional book, um, so we're looking at kind of Borgesian almost look. Mm. At the at the Holocaust, and I think that's a that that is an approach that works because the Hall of Mirrors allows you to multiply that single act into the infinity that um, otherwise is really hard to get to. Yeah, absolutely. That's the you know uh, uh, resonance, echo, symbolism, metaphor. These are all artistic tools. Um, so uh, the events in the novel are quite small. You know, they involve the lives of very few individuals, essentially two individuals. Um, but their echo, if you read this as as a novel, its echo is infinite, its resonance is infinite. And that's that's the point of art. It, it reduces the universe into a single teardrop that will refract, you know, the experience of the world. Um, so yeah, you it is it is set on a very small stage, but you are through that stage looking at what happens on that stage, supposed to see a much larger picture. Now, uh, your main character here, Henry, Lote, he's um, at one point becomes an actor, and I'm wondering if you spent any time acting, because it seems to me that the difference between an actor and a writer is very small, and that any writer who sits down to write is immediately. The second you, especially a novel, you're you're playing a part. Yeah, in your head you play all these roles. That's absolutely fictional. I, um, uh, there there is certain there are certain autobiographical elements in the story, but really they they are coincidental. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Henry, uh, as you pointed out, uh, joins an amateur theater group. He also plays the clarinet. He also speaks German. None of those three are true of me. Henry also is a stand-in for the Jews in, of Europe. Jews have famously been involved in the arts. You know how many uh, Jews have have have, have uh, studied the the you know, have become very well known in the arts and the sciences. They've participated a lot in culture, and often in Europe they were multilingual. They would speak he, uh, you know at least a smattering of Hebrew, certainly Yiddish, and then one or two local languages. Far more multilingual, far more cosmopolitan than your average local yokel Pole or Hungarian. Um, so I wanted to reflect that. And also, just as the Jews did not see what was coming, if they had, there would not have been six million victims. They just, no one would believe that a, a, in a country as sophisticated as Germany, with a long tra history and tradition and a cultural grandeur, no one could believe that it would descend to such savagery. So the Jews did not see it coming, and when they did, it was too late. By the time Kristallnacht came around, it was just too late, and that's why so many end up in trains to hell. Um, that's There's a parallel in the novel for that, too. Henry the writer, Henry Lote, meets a taxidermist, and I don't want to reveal too much of the book, but you know it leads to a, a, an event, an incident towards the end of the novel that Henry just does not see coming. So it is, an, it is a novel. It is an allegory. 
Um, it may not always be apparent to the reader, and that's fine. The reader's to read it however he or she wants. Um, but the construction of Henry the writer uh, was for fictional purposes. If some elements of it resemble my life, and for example, the fact that Henry is a famous writer, I'm not doing that to talk about myself. I'm doing that because, in a sense, Jews are a famous minority. There are lots of minorities in mm -hmm. this world. Some are barely known. Who knows of the, you know, how well known are the Hmong people? Uh, you know, there's a lot of minorities. The Kurds, you know, the, we all are, may have heard of them, but Jews are particularly famous. They've been a, ch a chatty, you know, blazingly distinct uh, uh, people. And so they're, they're quote-unquote famous minorities. So that's also why I had famous, not just be a writer, but a well-known writer who's getting lots of letters. What I mean by that? Well, you know, the Jews are in communication with their age. They've traveled around so much. They're in communication constantly. So, uh, as I said, he's an allegorical parallel with the Jews of Europe. One of the things that this novel is interested in and seems to revolve around is time. Uh, you do a lot of interesting things with time, if for nothing else. I mean, the, 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 all the, if you think of all the time experienced by all the people who are victims and participants in the Holocaust. That's all. That's millions and millions of years. And, and you telescope millions and millions of years. At one point, your taxidermist tells uh, Henry, he says, you know, all the animals are alive. It's time that stopped. Hmm. Well, what art does too also is that it, it, it uh, ignores time. You know, a vivid story, a vivid novel, a vivid play... Uh, uh, a poem is eternally and when you access it it's as if time has never stopped I'll give you a, a fantastic example of that Gilgamesh which is one of the most ancient written texts we have it dates from the Sumerians it's uh, I think it's roughly 5,000 years old um, you read a good translation of that Stephen Mitchell uh, an American poet and translator has done a wonderful one it's a very moving story of Gilgamesh, who, uh, who has a good friend, Enkidu, and Enkidu dies. And Gilgamesh is horrified by the fact of death, and so he seeks immortality. And it all unravels. And it's, it's, it's a genuinely poignant drama. You read that Mitchell translation, and it's not, you're not looking at a telescope at some ancient event 5,000 years ago. No, you're looking at a mirror at yourself. We are Gilgamesh right now, right here. Um... So art can it jumps over time, and so in, in in Beatrice and Virgil, I also don't locate it. You don't know what city it takes place in. It could be Berlin, could be Paris, could be New York, it it could be where you live, um, and time is not important. What's important are the emotions, are the feelings, are the things said, the things thought, and those are atemporal. Um, so our relationship to animals is our relationship to animals and time is not is is not of the essence it's you know what are we thinking here so yeah uh, time is not important the drama takes place over a number of visits between henry and the taxidermist it's not, it's not made exactly clear how long it takes and all that because in a sense that's not important it's supposed to float like a lifeboat it's supposed to float on the ocean of time animals in in this novel they speak and they take on a, a human dimension hmm. and this is different well it's not in ways I suppose it's not different from Life of Pi but hmm. talk, talk about uh, creating these characters who are really sweet and, and wonderful and you know what's interesting to me is that when I read the words, I actually kind of get a, a, a picture of the physical creatures mm. that are saying them, mm. and it, and it's a and it's a very concrete picture. Did you work from the picture forwards, or did the words form coalesce around the the, the characters? Well, when I write, usually I have a, a quite a clear image in my head. I, I happen to I'm quite visual in that sense in my mind. Uh, for example, Life of Pi was all these color contrasts, uh, an orange lifeboat. Uh, an orange and black tiger, a blue ocean, a brown-skinned boy, all these color contrasts. Same thing with Beatrice and Virgil. I, I started from images. I think it is very different from Life of Pi. In mm -hmm. Life of Pi, I, I assume the reader loses himself, herself, in while looking at the animals. The reader, in a sense, becomes just a little eye floating above the ocean looking at the lifeboat. In Beatrice and Virgil, um, the animals, which, as you pointed out, are anthropomorphized, they speak English, they those animals are meant to be a mirror. So whereas Life of Pi, I thought you'd forget about yourself. You'd forget that you were human and you were just an eye observing this drama. 
in Beatrice and Virgil, those animals were there to bring you back to your humanity, um, which is why, as, as you pointed out, my, 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 my quest was to make them endearing characters, as any, as any person would be who is frightened and terrified and cornered. Um, y- you know, the, hopefully, we are cynical of our own species, but in, 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 trans- in, in translating, in adapting that suffering into the suffering of two animals, Rather than, you know, you can do many things, but hopefully one of them was, despite it being the suffering of animals, hopefully it'll remind you of human suffering and its unbearability and how um, we'll never get anything done if we don't open our hearts to human suffering. That's the first step in trying to resolve uh, problems collectively. You're doing more than just using animals to, to as uh, stand-ins for humans. And, no, uh, you're right. There's it, also... There's a, there's a theme of, uh, of, in this novel of the impact that we're having on the the world itself that absolutely humans may be capable uh, of killing the world they live yeah. on i'm concerned about things holocaustal which applies to human beings uh, first and foremost but also to to our environment we are interconnected and these divisions that we 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 build that we live with between us and other species of course they're true let's not kid ourselves that a koala is in any way human of course not so we have you know there are biologically re- reasons to, to to differentiate but at one point that's pointless it, it's sort of like saying you know my little finger here of my right hand is vastly different from my ear you're absolutely right they play different functions they're differently constructed but at one point so what they're all connected you know, they may be different, doesn't mean you can dispense with either one. It's the same thing. In a sense, you know, the koala is the distant little finger of the penguin in the Arctic. They're all interconnected, and to keep on seeing difference is to distance ourselves from them. Now, you don't want to bring them so close that you have penguins and koalas living together. That wouldn't work either. But they are interconnected, um, and to see ourselves as being uh, in that state of, of being connected and therefore needing to... We are our brother's keepers. We're also our animal's keepers. And in a sense, they keep us too. We profit from them too. Um, so that's why this uh, in Beatrice and Virgil, I try to overlap. I try to blur human-animal, um, not to diminish the, to the human, uh, um, not at all, but to sort of say, you know, these, tr- these tragedies are not similar, but they echo each other. And we, we can't do with either of them. Both must be stopped. One of the essential parts of art, I think, as you perceive it, and I think this is true in general, and we see this in this book, is silence. Hmm. Well, silence, that's a very good question. You're right. Often in the, in the, in the, in the stage directions, uh, in what I read, in fact, there is pause. there are lots of pauses and there's lots of silence. Um, I did that for a number of reasons. First of all, I personally am very tempted by silence. I'm 46 and I've only written, well, four four works of fiction and one collection of letters. Uh, and I've been doing it full time since my mid-20s. Um, I, I, think in la- I think we overrate language. I, I think verbal language we overrate. Um, we communicate in many other ways than just verbal language, facial expression, tone of voice, uh, body uh, body language. Um, and a lot of that, a lot of verbal language doesn't need to be actually said. I think I find silence. Silence is a very ambiguous thing. It could be the silence of shame. It could be the silence of hiding something. But it could be sort of a rich silence in which things grow naturally and are not so directed by these very controlling thing, things called words. So I, I'm often, I, I'm often tempted by silence, which is why I've written so little. Um, but also, silence is a place where things can grow, can mature, can... Um, so it's an ambiguous thing, but I think also a very rich thing. And it's just one I, I happen to like. I, I like those moments of silence in, 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 in the play, um, in the novel. I just, they're just things that appeal to me. And hopefully they'll have some sort of echo of sorts with the reader. One of the things that interested me was... Um, it was just this little detail that, that jumped out to me, was the way that uh, Henry plays his, his uh, clarinet. Um, he, 
uh, he does it in little doses so that he's always ready to come back to it. Mm. And I, I'm wondering if this is how you approach your writing. Well, it's certainly how I approach my reading. <laughs> um, I, when I was younger, I was a voracious reader, but uh, in my mid-20s, I slowed down, and I, I read now in short in short doses. I, I can no longer sit down and read for three hours in a row, four hours in a row. I guess it's my rusty bones, but I have to move. And also, I find that the, I read more selectively, I guess, now, so I, I read things that are nourishing, and I, my, my mind is very quickly full, and I have to take a break and digest what I've read. Um, and my writing, same thing, too. No, that's not true. Well, yes and no. Uh, I can spend all day writing, but it's very inefficient. I'm not a, I'm not a driven writer, so I sit down and I, I check my email, and then I, I waste my time playing Spider Solitaire, uh, which focuses me. I'm intensely happy when I play Spider Solitaire. It means I forget the world, and I'm intensely involved in this little game, so it's starting to focus my mind, and then I switch it to writing. Um, so it's not a very efficient process, but I do it all the time. So I guess it is frequent short doses. When you're writing in that style, um, that must make it more difficult as a, you know, part of your job as a writer is is also as an, I guess, as an editor and an anthologist. And, and I guess you have to go back and, you know, put together this collection of, they're not exactly short stories, but these these bits you write. And talk about, you know, transforming from the guy who who does sculptures to the guy who's the architect who puts the sculptures together into something that's bigger than the individual pieces. Well, it's a, it's a process, and each each writer has his or her own process. Um, I do a lot of research. While I'm doing research, I write little notes, which I write quite spontaneously, saying, oh, this doesn't matter, it's just to get it down. And when it's actually bits of fiction, I actually find often later on that they're actually pretty good. And the very fact of doing them spontaneously, uncensoring myself, results in pretty good stuff sometimes. And sometimes it's just factual stuff to remember. And then I bring all those notes together and uh, physically print them, print them up and then cut them up into pieces and then put them into envelopes and put them in the sequence in which they'll be used in the novel. And then I start writing. So even if I work in short bursts, um, I always have in mind the whole picture. And I ceaselessly go back and, and edit again, rewrite, tinker, change a word here. Uh, finally realize that something that has been bugging me 15 times, well, on the 16th time I realize why it's bugging me and I find a solution. It's a, it's a very, you know, to people who are not writers, they might find it incomprehensible. You know, some people don't like writing, and the idea must appear to them to be hell on earth. Um, but it's something that I absolutely love. I just love, I don't mind going over a sentence 200 times. Um, you know, whereas, for example, gardening just drives me crazy. I find gardening the most boring thing in the world. It's hard on the back, and you get dirty, and all these plants look the same to me. Some people would say, well, it's ridiculous. Gardening is one. It's one of the great pleasures of my life. You know, that's what I love about our species is we are, we are so unbelievably varied in, in what we do. So my process is, is, is uh, um, I never did, you know, the, 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 the person who does the small little bits and the architect overall, it's one and the same person, and... Um, Every aspect of it I enjoy, from the constructing of the sentence to the conceiving of the whole story to editing. Um, and when it finally gets published, you know, I, I like getting involved in the in the layout of the cover and uh, the, the the text on the on the on the jacket, the jacket copy. It's all it's all part of the whole, the whole thing. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting about this book is, you know, you refer to a, a lot of other literature. Hmm. You know, uh, Flaubert, Martin Amos, Times Arrow, uh, uh, Diderot. Uh, talk about, you know, as a writer, how do you feel about, like, incorporating these little bits? This is, in a sense, this is almost a, a collage work in some ways. In fact, the whole thing <laughs> is like a collage of writers that are real and writers you've made up and writers who are you and writers who are like you. There's it, also it, that list of things, that sewing kit, as it's called, and all yeah. these lists of... Well, the, the attempt is to be mnemonic. I, I am trying to remember the Holocaust by different ways. So I, I bring in as many things as I can. And since I am trying to make it live in a different kind of language, it struck me as natural to use... To, re to, to make reference to other writers, to other people who, who, who speak um, through language. And I was really uh, pleased with how concise this was. Um, this is a big subject. Hmm. It's, you know, the, arguably the biggest subject that we have still 
facing this, especially given what you said, that it hasn't been transformed yeah. in the way that you transform it. How did you, as a guy who's like, it's like you're sitting on top of the atom bomb before it comes out as a mushroom cloud. How did you keep that mushroom cloud to be like less than 200 pages? Well, it's interesting you say that. If you actually think of it, most books, most artistic books on the Holocaust are actually quite short. The history books go on forever in tomes and tomes. But, you know, if you think of Primo Levi, if you think of Elie Wiesel, Imre Kurtish, Faithlessness, a lot of these artistic books are actually quite short. Bizarrely, despite the magnitude of the event, our statement on it, um, our direct emotional artistic statement, is usually relatively short because, don't get me the wrong way, don't misunderstand me here, but in a sense, there's not much to say about it. It was horrific. Um, now, of course, the explaining of it and all that will go on for a long, long time and should. We have to analyze it under every angle. But it's summation. It's artistic summation. What we would have to say about it when we meet God can actually be said fairly quickly. Um, and at the very end of the novel, I don't want to talk about it too much, but there's a section called Games for Gustav. Uh, where I sort of finally deliver my allegory, mm -hmm. my summation of it. Uh, you know, these are these 12 little suitcases, and there's a 13th one. These are these suitcases. They're very, very short because the, the, the moral summation, the existential summation of the Holocaust can be delivered very, very quickly. Paradoxically, considering the magnitude of the event, uh, it can be delivered quite briefly. And But that's something that art is good at. Uh, in nonfiction, yeah, even, although even the memoirs are very short, but that's because usually it's one person's life for a few years. Um, but the explication will go on forever. Um, but how we feel about it can be said quite succinctly. It, art transforms, and your art has been and will be transformed. The life, life of Pi was transformed into a, an illustrated book, and there have been many attempts to, I, as I understand it, to transform it into a movie. Can you tell us where any of those are and how you feel about that? I mean, because given the kind of transformation you make here, you must have some really strong feelings about what happens to your work when it gets transformed. Um, well, the process of turning into a Life of Pi into a movie is ongoing, and it's just, there's been a few changes because it's so expensive making movies and so uncertain. But right now, as things stand, uh, Ang Lee is supposed to, to adapt it and direct it. He's a fantastic director. I'm in awe of his talent. I absolutely loved, loved Brokeback Mountain, a truly a great movie. And also his previous movies, Sense and Sensibility, The Ice Storm, um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. He, he's an amazingly diverse um uh, director, so he's doing it. Uh, I, I'm quite happy with that. I love movies. I, I grew up like most North Americans. I grew up on movies. Um, movies can be so powerful; they can s so catapult us into a different reality uh, that you know, for the two hours of a movie, you're in bliss. You're so totally absorbed. It's such a. It is the defining escapist activity. A great movie. Uh, so I love cinema. You know, there are dangers, of course, but you know. The, there are risks. Well, you take those risks, and if you're lucky, you know, you, you win. Um, now, Ang Lee is an amazingly able director, huge talent. Uh, the studio is backing him fully, so I hope they pull it off. And, of course, you know, the downside of a movie is that it, it sets aesthetically how people see a story. So the actor, in Life of Pi, I never describe Pi. It's irrelevant what he looks like. He is looking out, and we look out with him. In a movie, the camera's on the outside looking at him while he's looking. So clearly, they, obviously, they have to choose an actor. And as soon as they we see Pi, we'll either say, oh, he wasn't quite what I imagined. I thought he'd be taller or shorter. Or we'll have some sort of aesthetic reaction to that actor, which is completely uh, irrelevant in terms of the book. Um, so uh, when we think of Pi Patel after the movie comes out, we'll see him in terms of that actor. Same thing with the lifeboat, uh, even perhaps with the tiger. Um, it'll be made concrete, whereas before it was something nebulous in our nebulous yet powerful in our imagination, in the imagination of the reader. So there are those risks, and of course there's a risk of the movie concluding in a way that will uh, not sit well with readers who may have concluded things differently or may have a different interpretation. Uh, but those are the risks you take with adaptations, and it's one I'm willing to take because I enjoy cinema. I, hopefully it'll tell the same story in a different manner and keep its rich ambiguity. Now, it, it strikes me that the way you write is that 
there's something that's planted inside of you long ago, and it takes a long time to grow to fruition. And, and I'm wondering if you, right now, if if you sense that there's something else out there that happened to you or that you took an interest in many years ago that might become your next uh, literary work? Or well, I'm already working on it. I'm sort of surprised, actually. Because Beatrice River was sort of a hard one to write, I'm... I'm gleefully throwing myself at the next one already. It'll feature three chimpanzees in Portugal, um, which sounds like a completely ridiculous premise, but it was the same thing. People had the same reaction with Life of Pi. I have something very clear in my mind, and uh, I, I'm racing ahead with it already. Um, and it's a, it, it, the premise for this one was a very, very old one. In fact, I remember being in second year university and working on this story set in Portugal uh, featuring a chimpanzee, and I just... I was too immature as an artist to, or in fact, immature as a person to be able to deal with that story. Um, and it was the one I was kind of working on when I went to India before I wrote Life of Pi. Well, finally, I think it's it's finally at age 46, I'm getting clarity on it. So I'm going to work on that one. So yeah, I, I do work. I work slowly and constantly. Um, some writers are very fluid writers. Some writers, you know, write in entire paragraphs. I write word by word. And I don't mind that slowness. I'm a, there's a reason why there's a sloth in Life of Pi. You know, that's maybe the only autobiographical character in Life of Pi. Um, to me, writing is not like making jello where it instantly sets and there you go. You can, you know, it's a very long, slow process, but uh, as satisfying as life. Life is a slow thing to be lived fully, and uh, my writing is the same thing. So I do think about it a lot in my head. I go over it constantly and live with it, and it's a very satisfying experience. Uh, uh, I loved living with Life of Pi for four years. Same thing with Beach and Virgil. Despite all the left turns and right turns and dead ends, um, it was like inhabiting a place, and it was a place that was very gratifying to be in because it was one of my own creation. It was a, uh, you know, a rich place that was being constructed. Writing a novel for me is like building a cathedral. It is slow, but you're building something it's so grand. It is such a grand thing to be building. And you are both the architect and the worker, and you see it build. And to me, a story ultimately is something still in my head. And the book is some sort of excretion out of that process. And it's a beautiful thing, a book. But when I look at it, it's slightly alien. When I see the words on the page, I'm slightly puzzled to see them on the page. Because, you know, it was something on a computer screen. I do love writing on a computer First of all, because it's a very powerful tool, but also there's something virtual about words on a screen. It is, they don't exist the way they do on paper. And that lack of tangibility, of, you know, of being tangible, means they float in my mind the way the story floats in my mind. And that's where the story really is for me. And to be in that state of being in story is a completely blissful process. And it must be the same for all artists whenever they're involved. You know, the painter painting, the musician playing, the composer composing, the dancer dancing. When you're in that state, it is a state of ecstasy. And I don't, you know, I don't mean I'm, I'm wildly tapping away here. It's a much, um, well, some of the physical arts like dancing, it maybe is very ecstatic physically. But for me, it's, it's, um, it's like a med meditative, transcendental state where you're in this... Uh, in this process where your whole being is involved and you are in dialogue with existence. And to be involving yourself at that deep level of humanity is profoundly profounding, sat profoundly satisfying. Um, it is the greatest activity I can think of. So when it's going well, it's, it's, there's nothing better than it. Now I was going to ask you about the spirituality in your books, and I think you've just explained it. Well, that's just the process of creating. That That's still just the the... the, the bleeping of my ego. Um, um, as a result of Life of Pi, I, I, I am a religious person in the broad sense of the word. I'm not particularly denominational. I don't mind organized religion. It can deliver a framework within which to be religious, and it can uh, make sure you get out of your ego and don't practice sort of the cafeteria approach where you pick and choose what you want and therefore just increase your ego. So organized religion has that benefit. But mainly, I'm just interested in being in dialogue with transcendence. I, I think we gain more by looking at life transcendentally than strictly uh, materially. To conclude that life is just chemistry and happenstance is perhaps correct rationally. Uh, you know, agnosticism is the, is the only true logical position one should hold. Uh, that may be scientifically true, rationally true, but it's not existentially satisfying. Life is a question of making choices and throwing yourself at those choices. To sit on the fence your whole life is basically not to live. 
Um, so I choose to believe that this whole existence makes sense. Not in the way that I understand, but that's fine. The first step in religion, in religious thinking, is to abdicate understanding everything, is to acknowledge the smallness of your own mind, the limitations of your rational tools, and say, I am small, there's something greater out there, and I'm a part of it in a way I don't understand, and that's fine. And so there's that letting go of that obsession with understanding, uh, that obsession of dwelling on yourself and believing that you're part of something bigger. And in that, with that kind of thinking, you know, you become, it becomes easier to let go. And after all, in life, the first step, the, 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 you know, the, the hardest lesson to learn, but the most essential one is to let go. You have to let go of everything and rather want to cling to it if you do let go, you start flowing with things. And, uh, uh, yeah, it makes for a grander existence. It's as if the chemistry of life is the nonfiction and the mm. life we live is the fiction. And that's why it gets why we're story animals. Absolutely. I've been speaking with Yan Martel. His new novel is Beatrice and Virgil. Thank you for joining me, Yan. My pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.